Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. The podcast that's more 90s than Bodger and Badger. Yeah, my daughter thought that was weird. My name's Ash Rose, your host and your guide on this, the original, the best, the first, the most 90s, we remember the most, honest, Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. Thank you very much for joining us as always. Hope you're enjoying the Euros. I think it's been a decent tournament so far, isn't it? For a drop this one on those two days that we get after the group stage that we, uh, we're all shocked and don't know what to do because there's no football. Because it's uh, Thursday and the Friday of this uh, second week of Euro 2020. No games until the new the knockout stages start on Saturday. So why not fill the void in your footballing world by listening to us chatting along on some 90s nonsense? Why not? Eh? It's it's always it's always decent. It's always a decent chat, and that's exactly what we are all here doing today. Um, an interesting topic, different. As well, um, we are talking about a new book that's out that you'll be able to hear all about on the podcast in just a second. Uh, we have got regular Matthew Christ, who, uh, let's be honest, is doing rather well for himself at the moment with the Brian McClare podcast, which, you know, I'll give a little plug to because he's my pal. If you haven't listened to it and you're a fan, I know we joke a lot here about him and his, uh, his childhood obsession with uh, Brian McClare, but it's uh, it's been doing really well, the, the show. They've had some great guests on there. I think the new one that just dropped is with uh, Henry Winter of The Times, obviously very well-renowned journalist, football journalist, so that'll be an interesting shout. And there's some great shows with Manny, I think they had on there. But yeah, some great stuff out there. And if you're looking to listen to something else as well, after, obviously, you've listened to this and all the other shows, if you haven't listened before to Alive and Kick In. Always a good option to rehash the uh, Italian 90 podcasts um, we did last year that they've been uh, redoing as well and just re-promoting that we had last summer. There's some great stuff if you want to, you know, fans of the 1990 World Cup like us, it's always good to, to do that. So yeah, give that a shout. And while I'm doing it as well, if you haven't listened to the Shiny Pod as well, uh, friend of the show, Matt Ketchell and his pal, sort of looking through the 90s through the 1997 sticker album it's a good listen he's got some he's had some great guests on there already as well i think they're on a season break at the moment so there's a chance for you to catch up on what those guys have been doing so uh, after our, we'll get matt back on actually maybe in a new season and he can tell us more about it how it's going and stuff but yeah really enjoyable stuff um, but let's talk about live gigging and today's show we are talking about a book uh, by author jim kean who joins us on the show and it's called isn't it just me or is modern football SHIT? So right in the realms of us basically means that we can moan about modern football for the next 40 minutes or so and say, oh, it wasn't as good as it was in the 90s, was it? Which is basically the theme of this show. So that book feels nicely in our remit. And that's what we do. Thought it was a little bit break um, from the Euros. Um, we may have one more Euro-y themed pod before the end of the tournament, I'm just putting those things together at the moment to see um, if they can come a line, basically, and we can get it sorted. So I'll let you know on that. Uh, but during this break now, me, Matthew and Jim moaning about modern football, looking back on the 90s, 90s in the only way we can and the best way we can on your podcast airwaves. Enjoy. <laughs>
You are listening to Alive and Kicking, the original 1990s football podcast. And we're back in the book game today and we're talking about, well, we're going to have a moan, which I know you love because we love the 90s and we wish we were all back there, especially when I see Phil Foden dying his hair. And that rhymed as well. So, yeah, we are going to have a moan about modern football in just a minute. I'll introduce my guest. But first, let's introduce my regular part of the furniture, of course, Mr. Blue Tick himself on his other podcast, host of the Brian McClare podcast, as well as writer for many other websites, Mr. Matthew Chris. How are you doing, Matthew? I'm very well indeed, thank you. Good to be back on the uh, my original podcast, I like to call it. Yeah, yeah. well, it's the original podcast, but it doesn't, hasn't got a blue tick yet. I haven't applied for one, so uh, maybe... Um, maybe, yeah, maybe, maybe that has something to do with the fact that we haven't got a presenter who played uh, for United for 11 years and won yeah. four league titles. Maybe that has something to do with it. Yeah, we've still we've still got time, Matthew. We've still got time, but yeah, yeah, that's true. Congratulations on your blue tip, though, and all the stuff. Uh, great stuff with Clive Tilsley as well. I enjoyed that show. I listened to that. Well, yeah, it's um, yeah, Clive's so good. I mean, you can't really. As soon as you get Clive on the show, you know it's going to be a good one. So uh, it was a pleasure. Yeah, do check that out and join us as well. He is the uh, author of a, a brand new book from Pitch Publishing called Modern Football is Rubbish, <laughs> which is, or is it just me or it's Modern Football Rubbish, or I should say the full title, which is out now, which I'm sure he'll plug for us as we go. Um, he is Jim King. How are you doing, Jim King? Good, thanks. You're right. Am I pronouncing that right? I wanted to get that right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. How, how are you doing, fella? I'm okay. A bit hot, but yeah, I'm all right. Yeah, no, so the weather is changing. We're getting to new, towards the Euros and stuff. So we'll be thinking about Euro 96 and World Cup 98 on this podcast where everyone else gets a bit crazy about the rest of what's going on. But let's talk to us about the book, first of all, um, before we talk about your football 90 CV. How, what made you write this book? I mean, we all, and me and Matthew especially, sit here for a long time. I'm sure the words goal and nets will come up during this podcast today, especially with Matthew on it. We sit here and we hark back to the 90s and we complain and moan about what we liked and what we missed. How did you get to the point where you needed to write a book about it, get it down on paper? Tell us that journey, Jim. Well, I think it's been, I mean, it's been a long journey. It's, it's probably like 20 years in the making, just sitting there like, like a lot of people, uh, seeing these various different aspects of the modern game pop up. Uh, and you, I guess you, you think back to the football that you enjoyed when you were younger. So for, for me, the football of the 80s and the 90s. And you're conscious that, that the game has really ch- changed beyond recognition. And uh, although like, there's lots of good stuff about modern football, I'm not some kind of like elderly curmudgeon who just hates everything. I, I recognise that it's, you know, it's technically better on the pitch and there's, you know, it's, it's more inclusive and that kind of stuff. But I, I think a lot of people feel that it comes at a cost. And uh, so I kind of, the idea was to sort of go through the various costs, do like an A to Z of um, of the modern game and uh, have like a, a cathartic moan about all these different things that, that people find irritating. Oh, and it's great. I've, I've read bits and bobs of it. When I have the time and non-children running around, I will sit and read it all, but I've read bits and bobs and kind of, it's that kind of book where you read and you just find yourself nodding along the whole time, just going, yep. Yeah, and we'll get to a few bits that are 90s related um, in just a second. Matthew, you've perused the book as well. This is right up your street, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned 80s as well, because, you know, my, I, I never get through a show without making at least one reference to the 80s. So, um, yeah, because, I mean, you could argue that when the 90s came along and the Premier League came along, I mean, that was seen as modern football to some people at the time. And now <laughs> the irony is now we're looking back on it as uh, the sort of halcyon days of old school football. So, uh I suppose that says a lot about our age, doesn't it? But um, but yeah, I've said before on the show how 
you know, that when the Premier League first started in, well, 92, um, things didn't really seem to change overnight. It was more 96, 7, 8, 9, when things, it, all the changes that, that came in really made a difference. So, so it wasn't really, I mean, we've said many a time, if you look at the first season of the Premier League, you wouldn't really notice any difference between that and the, the, the last season of the first division. It's just, it took a while for it to become the sort of beast that it is now, the, um, you know, the, the all-conquering beast that, that everyone loves around the world. Because, um, yeah, if you, 92-93, there were plenty of muddy pitches and old-school goal nets and small shorts and, you know, everything that we've, we've known for the previous 10 years, really. Yeah, so we'll talk about some 90-related bits from Jim's book in just a second. But as it's your first time, Jim, we like to get to know our guests a little bit and we give them our 90s football CV. Um, you're an Everton fan. We haven't had too many Everton fans on this show, so it'd be interesting to see where you take this. Um, firstly, 90s for Everton I always mean highs, very much highs and lows in my head. I always remember the Graham Stewart uh, Wimbledon factor when they almost went down. Obviously, the last trophy Everton won with the 95 Cup final. How do you remember the 90s uh, from for Everton? It, well, like that, it, it was very up and down. But I think kind of overall, if you look at where we started the decade and where we ended it, it was definitely kind of downward trend for us. I mean, we, we entered it as kind of an elite team and one of kind of the, the teams pushing for the Premier League recent champions twice and we were you know we've been like a big noise in English football for like you know at least 30 years uh at the very top and then you know through through various factors a lot of mismanagement at the club um we ended the decade really as kind of relegation fodder and a team that were massively in debt and uh Nobody wants to buy us either. We were kind of a, you know, a, a toxic club by the yeah, end of it. Yeah, very much so. I mean, when I think of Everton in the 90s, I can't help but think of Mike Walker, just because he's Mike Walker. Like, he, he wasn't around in any other decade. He didn't do anything post-Everton. You know, we only know him pre-Everton from Norwich. It's just very a very bizarre situation, the whole Mike Walker thing, but not good memories, I suppose, for an Everton fan, I suppose. No, I think... Mike Walker is kind of unquestionably the worst event manager in uh, in kind of the, in well since the war certainly he was yeah. uh, just kind of the 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 death spiral that we that we endured kind of when he joined the club we were kind of mediocre when he joined and then we just went on this horrific run somehow survived in uh, 93 94 when we we seemed doomed um and then we kept him as manager, despite all that, and went into the 94-95 uh, season. And we were, honestly, I think it's the worst Everton team I've ever seen, which is saying something, because I've seen plenty of really <laughs> crap Everton teams. But they were just completely clueless, so weak, so easy to beat. Yeah. And um, I, I think if he'd stayed on in the job another month, when, then we would have definitely have gone down in 94, 95. If Joe Royal hadn't come in to replace him, we would, do, we would just do. And he was, I think his, his win rate is like so far below every other Everton manager. He was just an incredibly poor choice. Mm, yeah, I just, I remember that. The first ever game I went to, QPR game was against Everton. I don't know if you remember, it was at Loftus Road. Nibble Southall got sent off. Paul Ryder got sent off. Andy Sinton scored a hat-trick. So Everton always a little bit of soft spot. Matthew, but Evans, if you going back to your '80s roots, they were they were a team, weren't they? I mean, as as Jim says, there the '90s kind of they were on that spiral. But going into the our favourite decade, Everton was very much still yeah, a title rival, really, weren't they? 
Definitely, yeah. I mean, if you think, I mean, Jim doesn't need me to tell tell him how good that that 84, 85 Everton team were. And obviously spent most of the 80s battling with Liverpool. You know, the, the title flipped hands between the two, at least, you know, uh, 84, 85, 85, 86. They went toe-to-toe again. Then Everton won it again in 87. Then there was the 89 Cup final. I mean, it was the whole decade was dominated by the two great Merseyside rivals. So to... Yeah, then as soon as the 90s came along, it just seemed to draw a line. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because you think of United, they struggled so much in the 80s. And then as soon as the 90s came along, they basically spiralled and it all went incredibly well for them. Could argue that Everton were the complete opposite. As soon as the 90s came along, um, it just went horribly wrong. And yeah, you think back 10 years before the Mike Walker fiasco, Everton were by far the best team in the land and probably the best team in Europe. And um, that's that's hard to believe. I'm just trying to think whether you could think that about any club now, really. I mean, the, the big clubs currently in the Premier League tend to stay around about the same level, don't they? It's very rare that you'd get a team would suddenly struggle with with form or, or whatever you want to call it and, and suddenly become a shadow of themselves. That's true. Um, we always ask these questions as well, Jim. Uh, your favourite Everton player of the 90s then? Please say Daniel Makachi. <laughs> I mean, the way it made choose from, to be honest, but I mean, it's probably quite a boring choice, but it's going to be Duncan Ferguson, I think, um, because we didn't have many heroes in that era. And um, and before he arrived, Everton were quite a small, kind of tidy team of players like you know, Tony Cotty and Beardsley and uh, Mark Wood. And suddenly you get this gigantic uh, lumbering beast um, up top. Uh, and when he first arrived, he wasn't particularly liked. He, he came on loan and he, he, he didn't, he looked really, really lazy in the first few months that he, he came to Goodison. And there was a, a really key game. Uh, it was a Goodison derby. Uh, Joe Rose first game in charge and Everton bottom of the league and, and Liverpool were flying high. And Ferguson, uh, I think he got kind of uh, far from behind by Ruddock and he just, he got up furious. And within about five minutes, he scored this kind of this bullet header and then um, Goodison had erupted. And that was kind of the, the, the point after, from that point on, you know, our team's form improved. We ended up winning the cup that season. Ferguson was a massive part of that. And just kind of his attitude changed and his, his kind of his connection to the fans was so much deeper. And even though like during his career at Everton, he didn't score loads of goals. He was, he was frequently injured or suspended or in jail. And, um, and yet, despite that, he was just loved. And obviously, you know, since he's left the club as a player and come back as a coach, you just that sense that he he thinks like us, he, he knows what the what the club means to the fans. That, that's always been there with Ferguson. So um he's an obvious choice really from the nineties, because I mean, not only because of what he is, but also he didn't really have any rivals, to be honest. Mm. Even El Barrett. I used to love El Barrett. Vastly underrated. He's, he's all right. I mean, he's no Ferguson. <laughs> I always throw out that fact that Ryan Giggs says that Old Barrett was the best right back he ever faced, him and Paolo Maldini, which makes me just, it makes me smile. Really? really? Yeah, it was a long, really? a long time ago. It was like a late yeah. interview in 442. Yeah. yeah. Not, not for Everton, probably. <laughs> Maybe for Villa. Uh, yeah. what, any memories for you, Matthew, of, of Big Dunk? I mean, we all have the same kind of view of his scariness and, you know, the, the toughness that he brought. But I remember that goal, since you said Duncan Ferguson, that, that Merseyside goal and how it changed Everton's fortunes. Were you a fan of Big Dunk, Matthew? Yeah, I've got nothing against him and I, I still like him now. I mean, he's, a, you know, I know for well, knowing a lot of Evertonians and being in the city, I know he's still an absolute god. And there's a lot of blues that would love to have him as their manager, you know, with that, fill that vacancy. But um, my overriding memory has to be 
March 95, uh, big dunk rising at the far post, crashing their head past Peter Schmeichel and running down the touchline, swinging his head, uh, shirt over his head for a goal that essentially cost United the league that season. And I was, yeah, I was there that day. Um, but, you know, I forgive him. I don't, <laughs> I don't bear any grudges as you well know. I was, I was over it all by then anyway. So I was, uh, yeah, it didn't, it didn't bother me too much. But, I mean, it's still a, it's still a huge goal that because even though Everton weren't really involved in, in the title race or you know, far from it, you know, that goal is still looked upon as, as a Duncan Ferguson highlight. And really basically it's just because it, it, it knocked United's title uh, march off the tracks really. So um yeah, that's that's all. That's what springs to my mind personally. But I know he's done a lot, a lot more than that, as well as turning around and chinning various people and <laughs> threatening people. <laughs> Didn't he do that in a European game? Didn't he swing yeah. around and, and uh, yeah, clean somebody out? I think. Um, which again, you don't see these days, unfortunately. So another reason to like the guy. Yeah, I think the modern image of him is him and Jimmy Bullard, isn't it? That famous clip of Jimmy looking at him and with all like his eyes popping out of his head to say like this guy is crazy, which um, it always always makes you smile. Um, yeah, I mean, I've been I've, I've been lucky enough to be at a few sort of functions and, and when you know Everton functions and, and um, when when he comes in the room, there's a real almost audible. You know, you can people always say how there are certain people when they walk in the room they capture everyone's attention. I definitely feel that with Big Dunk, not purely because of his physical presence, just because of the sort of player he is and the what a hero he is. So um, yeah, it's incredible to think that's still the case all these all these years on. Outside of Goodison Park then, Jim, um, who was your favourite player or the most admired player of the 1990s? Um, probably uh, Cantona for like, for two reasons, really. First, because the kind of player he was, uh, just kind of the, what he brought to the team, um, his kind of skill level, what he gave to United. He was just kind of, he was a, a, a really enjoyable player uh, to watch. But kind of for, for a second reason, and, it, and this is quite petty, the fact that he was kind of the, the catalyst, I guess, for United's success in the 90s. And that, as an Evertonian, there's nothing we enjoy more than Liverpool fans being irritated. And so when, when Man U sort of, uh, you know, became the the biggest club in the country, if not you know, in Europe at times, and to and to see kind of the the bitterness amongst Liverpool fans towards that, the fact that he was really instrumental in uh, in what happened just made me like him even more. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I don't need to ask you, Matthew, what you think of Eric Cantona, do I? I mean, that's I mean, we've spoken at length about Cantona on this show. We haven't actually done an episode on him. Maybe we should do that at some point. But I mean, he's the king, isn't he, Matt? Yeah, for, for that generation, definitely. I mean, obviously, United fans before that would probably say best or law or chart or whatever. But for that, for the, our era, I suppose you'd call it, most definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, everything that Jim said there, it, it just, and it's all been said before, you know, there's been various documentaries in, recently, actually, in the last few weeks, looking at United, and, and there's one that, uh, the United Way, it's called, which features Cantonar quite heavily. And, you know, that whole argument that United pretty much had all the bricks in position, but Cantona was just the mortar that, that stuck it all together. You know, they did have a good team. They nearly won the league before the year before. They should have won it the year before. Uh, they had everything at their disposal, but then they just needed that final piece of the jigsaw. And that's what, it's a cliche, but that's exactly what it was. I mean, you remember that season, that first season of the Premier League, United were, they lost the first three or four. I remember Everton going to Old Trafford and winning 3-0. Um, and they were, they were almost relegation fodder. And then Cantona comes along in that November, December. 
And then between then and the end of the season, I think they only lost about three games or something ridiculous. Now, I know it wasn't all him. You obviously had great players in that team, like Brian McClare, for example. Uh, ding, 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 <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Mark Hughes, um, Schmeichel, Bruce Palace. I mean, it was a great team. It was a t- obviously a title winning team, but he just, as the players say, he brought that confidence. He had obviously won the league the year before, so he was full of confidence. He'd been there, he'd done it, and he just brought that with him. And it just seemed to settle everybody down, and, um, and then they never looked back. I almost started singing Come On Your Reds then halfway through that because it sounded like you are going to burst into that Bruce Michael in a Palestine. But I wouldn't. Well, if I remembered the words, I would. Yeah, I, I probably, yeah I've got the cassette somewhere. Yeah, some, somewhere still. Great tune. Um, let's talk about the book and let's, let's pick out some bits. I thought that's what we do. Um, we won't spoil it because we want people to, to buy the book and enjoy it themselves. But let's pick out a bit of, basically, let's have a moan. Let's have a moan about modern football and give it a 90s slant. I know that Matthew's picked up a couple of points. I have as well. Um, but for you, Jim, is there, when I said it to you, I mean, what is the most 90s related moan about modern football you think you, you could come up with the book? And we'll, we'll discuss what our thoughts on it as well. I, I guess kind of the, I mean, this is probably true for a lot of fans. One of the kind of the main differences, I'd say, uh, between football 90s and 80s and it is now would be uh, ticket prices. I think a lot of people moan about that. When I, when I think back to kind of going to Goodison in the early 90s, and uh, I mean, this makes you sound really old, but like it would cost me like £2.50 to get in as a junior Evertonian. So I could, go, I could go to the game on like a free bus pass and have enough money to get in and, you know, get some chips and like a can of Coke. And it was, you know, a great football experience. And you wouldn't even need to kind of get a ticket in advance. You just kind of go up to the gate yeah. and, and you get in. And when you contrast that to so kind of the, the, the modern football experience in a top flight where tickets can cost you, if you can get a ticket, it can cost you like, you know, 35, 40 quid. Uh, and, the, you know, if you're like a, a young Scotty trying to go to the game, it's, it's so much more expensive. It's not even just a Premier League thing. If you go down to like, even somewhere like League Two, you can pay £25 to sit and watch not a great game of football. Yeah. In the non-league system now, you can, you're seeing prices of, of like 15 quid to stand in a kind of a, in a knackered uh, terrace to watch like part-time welders slug it out in like in Route 1 football. So it's, I'd say kind of that's one of the main, the main gripe of a lot of fans uh, with regard to kind of modern football, it's just it's it's a ridiculously expensive thing for ninety minutes of entertainment. I mean, nothing comes close, uh, and that's kind of I guess you see the seeds of that starting in the kind of the late nineties and going into kind of the noughties and beyond. But it's um, it's that sort of death of, of the old football league world where football was cheap and it was for everyone really, and that's definitely not the case anymore. I certainly remember. It's probably more recent than the top flight because as a QPR fan, I was going to QPR games and you could still, in the relatively recent past, go up on the day and buy tickets. You, you know, you didn't you didn't have to book online or struggle. Not that we were in the Premier League, of course, but before that, you could still go on the day. I mean, prices are still on the dear side for championship football, I, I would say. And as you say, you can, you can even get them even dearer, the leagues below and going internationally. But yeah, I mean, my dad was the same as well. You know, my... He would used to just sneak into the ground for a few quid as well. It's just that it's a, it's a bit of a shame that it's now it hasn't got that kind of it's not not family, but the kind of I suppose it is habitual kind of you just go on the day, you know, let's decide to go a game. It has to be planned in advance. You have to book your tickets yeah. and you have to wait and see which games are free. It kind of takes the like, mystique about going to football out of it a little bit. So I can totally understand that. And 
not supporting a, a top flight team, I, I've avoided some of the big prices. And I don't know about you, Matthew. I know obviously you're a main eye fan. You don't go as as often as you once would. But I mean, I I could assume getting a ticket for Man United is now quite the palaver, whereas before it was relatively a simple process. Yeah, I mean, you know, for well, I I hardly go at all now. I, I mean, I, the last few top flight games I've been to have been at Goodison, sometimes Anfield, just because it's where I live and I've got contacts. But even then, I've always had to call in favours to get tickets because, I mean, like you say, I feel sorry for the, the, the sort of families, the dads. You know, when I wanted to go, I'd ask my dad, you know, like you would, and he'd say, OK, we can go on Saturday or whatever. And you just basically go. I mean, now I live in the centre of town and you, you see on a normal match day in normal times, you know, you see people arriving in the town on a Thursday and they've got the bags and the suitcases and all that, you know, and they're coming from Norway and Ireland. And this is obviously Reds, Jim, by the way, before you correct me, (laughs) (laughs) I know you're going to say, we don't, not with us, but, um, you know, and fair fair play to them. They, you know, they pay their money and they've got every right. And I know mates that come over from Ireland, but you know, they're all, they're willing to pay three, 350 quid for a ticket, you know, plus a couple of hundred for a hotel room. And I do think how the hell, if you, I mean, you've got young kids. I mean, probably too young to go to football yet. But I mean, if they, in five or six, seven years' time, they say they want to go and watch QPR against Liverpool or whatever, you've got no chance. And um, I mean, I remember you used to be able to buy QPR tickets in HMV over the counter. I mean, you, you could, you go in and say, you know, and it was 10, 11 quid or whatever, you know. And uh, I mean, I just, yeah, I do feel sorry for, for kids. I know it sounds like a real cheesy thing to say, but I just think if if it was this, if I grew up in this era, I'd never have gone to the games. I mean, I used to go home and away. I used to get great memories of going to great away trips to, you know, Anfield, Goodison, Main Road, anywhere, QPR. You'd go, and you'd go with your mates and you'd stand and, you know, Palace away, you could stand in that big away and behind the goal. Yeah, that's just not, not possible now. And if you do get a ticket, you're sitting on your own, you, you're, you're not with your mates. Some people don't even get a ticket, so they have to watch it in the pub. And it just, I mean, it's become a TV spectacle, really, hasn't it? Um, to the extent that I just wouldn't, I, it just doesn't interest me, really. You know, I shouldn't, shouldn't be saying that on this podcast, but it just, it, I just find it hard to even get excited about it. But but again, in a relatively short period of time, I mean, it's 25 years ago this week, Euro 96. I know 25 years is a long time. But, you know, you think what's changed in that time. You, you, it's just, it's incredible. It really, just just talking about it makes you realise how much it's sort of gone horribly wrong, really. And it's all very well, these protests we saw you know, a few weeks ago, but unless people continue that, I mean, it's no good doing that for a week and then just going, oh, well, it's all right now. It's all been forgotten about. Because it, essentially the, the message is still the same, isn't it? Yeah, no, it is. It's, it's still the same. And tickets will be something, I'm sure, that will constant. Um, sort of arguments will be back and forth. Um, Matthew, did you pick anything out of the the book that was ninety related that that Jim's nicely had a moan about that you wanted to to bring to the table? I've got a couple of things here, but I wanted to ask you first. Well, you go first because I'll probably end up picking the same one. Seeing as we always see things <laughs> on the same gold. wavelength, they're definitely not going. So, it. I think the first one that I mean, well, the first thing when I when I looked through the contents as well when I first got the book was QPR ritual goblets because I was kind of like, what are they? I didn't even know what they were. But... I, I got that it was more aimed at Club Tat than anything else. And back, my background will probably suggest that Club Tat is a big part of my world. So maybe not goblets, I don't think I know, but bobbleheads is certainly something that I do own at QPR, but it did make me smile. But t- certainly two ones I, I kind of focused on was, was Wembley was certainly one of them. Um, I moan on here about Wembley a lot for the fact that it doesn't host the FA Cup semi-final, the FA Cup final and not the semi-finals. I think the semi-finals should be always at neutral grounds, but that it was unnecessary talking about the actual structure. I'm so with you on this, Jim. It's like they've built this 
swanky, amazing new stadium with this amazing arch. And one of the things you say is like, everyone talked about the arch when it's built, but who's actually mentioned that arch ever <laughs> since? And they haven't. Like, it's not the Twin Towers. And I know that Wembley, I remember going to that Wembley, I did the tour for my one of my birthdays, actually, of the old Wembley. And I know it was decrepit. I know the seats weren't very comfortable. I know the toilets weren't very plush. But those Twin Towers, there was something so special about walking up Wembley Way. And they've tried to do it now with the Bobby Mod statue. And, you know, it looks all uber modern and, and nice. But for me, the Twin Towers were just, they were something else, weren't they, Jim? Yeah, but they were iconic, probably the yeah. most iconic structure in world football. And like, we had it in our country. And it, it still, I, it really, I find it bewildering that you could, you, when you come to kind of re, re kind of re, um, renovate or rebuild the national stadium, you just bulldoze that. It's a really uh, short-sighted, I think. It's like, um, you've know, got this, this really valuable building. I mean, you, I mean, you're right, Wembley was knackered and it wasn't a particularly kind of comfortable football experience but going there was very very exciting like I, I can recall going to cup finals when I was younger it was really exciting and and, the, and it just being the cup final there that day made it extra special I mean obviously now when you have semi-finals there it sort of dilutes the the kind of um how special that day is yeah. but um yeah and, and they've replaced it with this I mean it, you know technically it's a very good building it's a very modern stadium and it's you know everything in there is shiny uh, it's a bit creepy with the lifts and that kind of uh, with the elevators and that kind yeah. of stuff. Um, but it's kind of it's just devoid of charm. It's a it's a, this kind of brutalist concrete lump uh, that has sort of stomped all over uh, tradition. Um, I guess the FA want, wanted something to kind of represent modern football, something shiny and clean and uh, very forward looking. But um, I mean, the FA generally get things wrong, and I think. This is another example of that. They, they they could have built something, they could have incorporated the Twin Towers, or at least, you know, don't think more in keeping with what, what was there, but they just, you know, got rid of everything, started uh, from scratch. And it's a it's a kind of it's a joyless concrete lump that I don't think anyone really likes. No, I'm not really, I mean, I think we've talked about it before, Matthew, haven't we, about how much we love the Twin Towers and and but yeah, I, I don't know anyone who's been pro-art. I didn't think that was a word. <laughs> um, what gets me is it doesn't look like Wembley. You know, I mean, you know what a no. geek I am. I, I can watch a clip of any cup final from any year and from the old Wembley, and I can tell you exactly what game it was, who scored, everything. You know, it just had that, that famous sort of shadow across the pitch, the, those weird dugouts, you know, it was like a the joint benches, weren't they, with that sort of greenhouse behind it. And uh, But you watch a game from Wembley now, and I... You have to look two or three times to see that it's Wembley and not the Emirates or whatever new stadium's gone up. So it just it just doesn't look iconic to me at all. And I just think it's a shame that they didn't. You know, I'm a big fan of American sports and baseball grounds. Sort of 20 years ago, went through the same thing as we did with you know re regenerating or rebuilding. And quite often they would take what was there and build a new version of it, or they would incorporate something from the old into the new. You know, so. You had old brick brick walls that were on the previous ground that they've maintained, and, and how they couldn't do that with the twin towers or the tunnel behind the goal, that kind of stuff that we all associate with Wembley. I and mean, even if they just made a couple of token gestures like that, I think it would have gone down a lot better with them um, with fans. Because I don't, like you, I don't really know anyone that thinks Wembley, the new Wembley's great, and I haven't been for years and years and years. So I mean, I just to think what you're paying for drinks and. And stuff like that because we're, we're apparently still paying paying it off apparently 
Um, yeah, I, I to play the semi-finals to be there. I, went, I think I went to. I've been to a few England games. Obviously, um, obviously I was at 2014 with QPR and uh, who did we beat Derby in the playoff final? So, but yeah, it's not. Yeah, I'm with you guys. I remember going to Wembley for the first time in 1992 to see England France and just seeing that iconic structure. And it, I just don't think it has that same wow factor as it did um, in the 90s. And of course, I'm going to say that. Uh, Matthew, pick, have you got? Were you going to pick that one out or pick something else out for us? Yeah, well, Wembley's a bugbear for me. The the, the tap thing, um, I go along with the wholesale. And this is this is something I don't know whether it's just purely United thing. But again, part of my the reason I sort of fell out with go to United was when the success came, as we spoke about in the sort of mid-90s, they didn't half love tat. And, and, and the thing is, Liverpool in the 80s were criticised for not cashing in on their great success, you know, and Rich is probably rightly so, but I think United can be acute, can be accused of absolutely rinsing it dry when it came to um, flogging tat. But one of the things that you saw, I used to detest, and I don't know whether this was just a United thing, I think it probably was, was people having their faces painted. Yeah, I mean, I've mentioned that to you before, Ash, and you've looked a bit blank at me, and I think maybe QPR fans didn't go down that route, but you used to get people, and not just kids, blokes, turn up to games with, you know, red faces and UNITED on each cheek or devil horns. And I'm just, I just think, I mean, I suppose, thankfully, that's <laughs> that has gone out of it, but um, it's just summed up that era for me of, of the club just commercialising any other thing they could uh, to the extent, to, to the cost of, a lot of match-going fans. I mean, it wasn't just me that, in that era that used to get fed up with it and, and stop going because they essentially didn't want people like me there anymore. They knew that they could get kids in that wanted their faces painted and they wanted to spend, or their dads to spend 200 quid in the club shop. So um, I think it was a sign of, of things to come. But um, yeah, I've been I've been wanting to get the face paint thing off my chest for ages because we were going to talk, we were going to do a Room 101 show, weren't we? And I, I mentioned it. And you said, oh, well, I don't think anyone else knows anything about that. And thinking about it, I'm not sure. I, I, I bet I'd be surprised that Liverpool didn't do it. But um, I can't imagine Everton and QPR doing it, to be honest. Only at finals, I can remember. But Jim, is painted face. Um, is, it, is that marked on for the sequel now? Yeah, well, I, there was none of that at Everton. I mean, the thing <laughs> is, in there, like, uh, at Everton in the, like, the like, late 80s, early 90s, there was a real kind of... Uh, trend to not not wear colours I mean let, let alone face painting if you if you turn up to the match wearing an Everton top you were seen as kind of a, a bit of a pariah P- people would wear like you might get like a fanzine badge or a fanzine t-shirt this idea of splurging on merchandise was it was you know it's a a good it was really not not embraced for a long time different now I'm not sure it is though because you know, the last few times I've been to Goodison and you know the modern day equivalent of the face paint is the half and half scarf isn't it I mean, if we're doing this show in yeah. Yeah. 25 years time we'll be talking about the half and half scarf and obviously you see them a lot at Liverpool and United but the last few times I've been to Goodison I've not seen that many of them if you know they exist but they don't seem to be good. as prominent and, and yeah good and I suppose that would again go speak volumes about the fan base if I can say that I know that's a you'd take that as a compliment but um, <laughs> I would yeah definitely yeah. Well, I thought it's like a it's that it's a it's a tourist thing isn't it? the half scarf it's yeah. kind of it's someone who's going to the game just to be entertained for a day out and you want a souvenir that's what that's the half that's what who that's for I don't imagine if you were a tourist why would you go to Goodison because it's not necessarily a, a, a not entertaining it's not necessarily a pleasant experience so it's uh, I don't think we cater for those sort of people really yeah, yeah, it could could all change with the new stadium. I'm, I'm yeah. sure. I do think that. No, it's, it's Everton. It will always be a bit shit, really. <laughs> I can't say I've seen many half and half scarves around Loftus Road, 
I can't. I don't think we've done. No, but you would though. If QPR went up, you know, and then yeah, every week, every yeah. other week, yeah, yeah you would. It certainly, certainly would. So maybe, I'm not picking on anyone in particular. Saying that, actually, maybe I did. Maybe I'm remembering now. There were when we were in those two seasons, we were in the Premier League. They were dotted around, but yeah, obviously we're a smaller scale um, than others. Um, I was just going to mention before we go to a break. Uh, Soccer AM was something you've got in your book, um, Jim, and this is what I always say as well: the fact that it's 2021. And somehow Sky are still flogging this dead, dead horse of, of Soccer AM. And I've got, no, I've got nothing really against Fenners. I think he comes from that era and I get why they've kept him on it. Jimmy Bullard is, I don't know who he appeals to particularly. If he wasn't on that show, I'd dread to think what, what vocation he'd probably be doing now because he has that aura about him. Just rebrand it. Make it a different show because Soccer AM, when it, at, its, at its peak, before it got dry a tired lads moved on and soccer and didn't was brilliant you know as much as tim lovejoy separated a lot of the fan bases of the show and you know his review of the book is one of my favorite things ever put into word in when saturday comes the review of his famous book but hey, it's pete tim lovejoy was was saturday mornings helen that tabling was saturday mornings the whole gangway was part of the ritual you get up you watch soccer in before you go out and you get ready for the game the fact that it's still going and still has really tiny elements of the original soccer I am. I, yeah, I'm, it's, it's not for me. How about you? Were you a fan of it? Were you a fan of it first time around then? Me? Yeah, totally. Yeah. 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 I think I, I don't think I was. I think that's, but yeah, that was well and truly the time where I thought, mm, I was getting a little bit, you know, that sort of, that sort of lad culture, you know, that, that came in with football, mostly thanks to Euro 96. Yeah. That sort of, it was all right. It was cool to be a football fan type of thing. And I, I sort of blame. Much, yeah. It was very much of that, but I think it had elements of, because I was in that zeitgeist, you know, I was listening to Britpop. I was part of this whole new kind of laddism, reading loaded in FHM. I kind of, I was, I was, I was their audience. I just think it went on too long. And I think that's what Jim says in the book, don't you? It's just that it, it was time to end it. The peak was a long time ago. Yeah, well, I can't believe it's still on. When, when, when you kind of look at the, 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 the content and you kind of look at the context of kind of what, what TV and what football is now, it, it's hard to kind of understand who it's for anymore. I mean, you get the sense maybe that Sky kind of show up in the act at some point and, and just get rid of it all. But it's it seems like a, it, it's, it's quite jarring, I think, within the, kind of the modern football landscape. And I, yeah, I don't really get who's watching it. Yeah, I don't understand it. I'd love to know. I'd love to know what the figures were, the viewing figures were. I mean, yeah, you think if they if, if think if people weren't watching it, it would soon get the axe. But it, it obviously, yeah, obviously, yeah. The yeah. worst thing about it is when it is on, it's on about four four channels at once on yeah. a Saturday morning. Yeah. When you when yeah. you're not you're looking for something to watch and you think, oh god, it's on like Sky One and Sky Mix and everything else, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, they've, you know, they've rebranded Sports Saturday, so you know, Sky Soccer Saturday, and it wasn't as good as it was. So I don't know what they're doing really with their football coverage. We'll see next season. Um, we'll have a couple more moments before we go, but we'll just take a quick break there, and we'll see you on the other side of this. Sit back and enjoy a nostalgic ride through the decade that truly changed the face of football. If the 90s are now retro, then it's time for a celebration. Welcome to Alive and Kicking, the 90s football podcast. Right, before we wrap up, that's maybe pick out a couple more things. I don't want to spoil the book for everyone. I'm just looking, again, I was trying to remember 
what, what, what spoke to me. Jim, I mean, is there anything for you from a 90s point of view you wanted to mention before we wrap up that this, this book entails and, and something that modern football was better in the 90s on? Well, I think more so in the top flight, I think would be kind of the, the death of atmosphere. Yeah. You know, you know the, the games now, um, they're, they're not the same as they once were in Premier League. The, the atmosphere, I mean, you do get good games, you do get, do get good crowds. Um, but, the, you know, there are times when it's, it's really quiet, it's really sedate. And it's kind of given birth to this really weird trend in like the last maybe 10 years of kind of cultivated atmosphere where clubs try and um, like generate atmosphere before games there's um i won't say who it is because i want their fans to buy the book but there was there's one premier league ground that i've been to a few times and the kind of before the game you get like a like a roving fan cam to try and whip you up into a frenzy you get a kind of high energy dance music blaring out to try and get you pumped up uh, the, the fans have like giant foam fingers or hand clappers you're thinking if, if 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 it's taken that much effort to get football supporters to make noise then Maybe there's something wrong with football because you shouldn't have to be kind of corralled and forced to do something that, you know, 30 years ago came naturally to everyone, which is to be excited about a match and to kind of to get, you know, get your emotion up and, and start chanting and, and singing. So it's, um, yeah, you, you go to games now and, you know, you do look back you know, through kind of roasting the specs, but it, it, it's definitely different. There's no there's no way the atmosphere is the same now as, as it was in the 90s or the 80s or even the 70s, really. I think a lot of that was because you, I mean, from my point of view, and probably you as well, all of us, back then you were in the ground a good hour before, sometimes yeah. in a big game. I mean, I remember going to go to cup quarterfinals or whatever, you know, when they were, and you'd be queuing up at 10 o'clock in the morning. And as soon as you got it, you get in at noon whenever they opened the gate and you had three hours to kill before the, the game started. And then, But then fans kind of made their own entertainment. You know, a few songs started and then a few away fans would start singing at you and then you'd sing back and then the players would come out to warm up so that would get people going and then and then gradually you just could feel it building and building and building until 10 to 3 or whatever it was when teams came out then and you just didn't need any of that did you I mean I think a lot of it is now because people come into the ground cold they basically know that they've got a seat they know that they don't have to queue up so they just come in and almost expect to be entertained whereas years ago you almost had to do the entertainment yourself so I think that's where that comes from and um, I just remember the excitement of games like that where you'd be you know, the teams will come out in their suits to have a look at the pitch and all that kind of, I'm not even sure they st- still do that now because no one knows because no one's in the ground back then. But, you know, they'd go come out in the suits, they'd look at the pitch, they'd, you know, you'd wave to the fans and they'd come out in their training gear and they'd warm up. And it, it was just like a general gradual uh, procedure process to the to the kickoff, which I just remember finding really, really exciting. Well, my dad's still like that. And it's something he's ingrained in me, actually, because whenever we go, because I, as much as I try to, I always go to QPR as in a fan perspective, in a span perspective and we always get to the ground quite early because he likes to see the warm up and it's just he'll sit there my dad's not a big talker he's not a big chanter or shouter but he loves watching the warm-up he'll, and he'll and he'll try and work out what everyone's doing he doesn't know what he's watching but so I always get to the ground about half an hour early but I've noticed over the years how less and less people are there in terms of where I used to go and I was little the ground used to be packed and there was singing and stuff but the singing doesn't really start now until the teams are out coming out for the game so yeah it's that has changed for sure. I wonder if now we've had this break and everyone's gagging to get back to the grounds and have that match day experience again. I wonder if that might change somewhat. I really hope it does because I'd like to see that. I know that I'm, you know, I didn't go to, to, to a football game during that weird mini, not so mini lockdown. Oh, Maybe we'll see. We'll see when football gets back to some normality, won't we? Um, I think 
we've summed up the book perfectly there, Jim, in our little mini rants over everything we've we've talked about and given it a 90 slump. I don't want to ruin the book too much. I mean, I'm looking through the contents now and there's so much I could definitely go about. Like a bigger, better World Cup is what I wanted to really talk about, but maybe another time because... I always think the next tournament is always better than the previous tournament. When we all know, you know, we're talking on the week that Euro 96 celebrates its 25th anniversary, the best tournaments were in the 90s anyway. The bigger they've got, the more diluted the fun has become for me. So that's uh, that's another one. Um, where can people get the book? Find you on Twitter, Jim. Where is it available? If the book's available, the best place is to go to either Amazon or Pitch Publishing's website, and they've got all the links on there. And on, on Twitter, I'm at Jim Keoghan. Good stuff. And Matthew, where can people find you and your blue ticking podcast? Well, you weren't going to mention it. Um, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Matthew J. Chris. And if they get sick of listening to us on this podcast, they can also try me on the other one, which is the Life with Brian, the Brian McClare podcast. And on Twitter, that is at Brian McClare pod. Recent guests, Clive Tilsley and Manny from the Stone Roses. All right. Didn't say plug it that much, did I? <laughs> <laughs> You forgot your YouTube channel as well. Come on, give it. Yeah, it's also also available on YouTube. Also available on YouTube. Yeah, brilliant. No, give a listen. It's good stuff. And uh, give us a listen next time as well. We'll be back soon talking more '90s nonsense. The only way we know how on the original 1990s football podcast, the one that doesn't forget many things from the '90s. Trust me. Um, but until next time, I've been Ash Rose. He's been Jim King. He's been Matthew Christ. And this is Alive and Kicking. Keep it '90s. <laughs>